Merry Christmas, everybody. So my name's David. Uh, my family and I have been here about a decade or so, and every once in a while I get to crack open the word with you, and it is a blessing to do it. So it's so fun. So we got some stuff to do, so you guys ready to dig in? Okay. So in my house, I know it's Christmas, um, and I know it's Christmas because the Christmas tree is up, and I know it's Christmas because my kids will not stop playing terrible Christmas music. And I know it's Christmas because my wife and I talk way more about money this month than we do any other month. Um, And what I love about this time of year is it gives us an opportunity to dig in to the story in the gospel that is the Christmas story. And while I love it, there's also a problem that sometimes comes with it because it can sometimes be all too familiar. Like, we think we've read it, so we think we know it, and we miss what's there sometimes. So we are in week two of this series that we're be, that's uh, called, Do You See What I See? And last week, Greg looked at the character of the wise men in the Christmas story, and he spent some time looking at how, in reality, these characters in the Christmas story were pagans, non-Israelite, non-Jewish, Zoroastrian astrologers. And yet God said, yeah, those are the perfect ones to welcome me when I show up. And so what we're trying to do in this series is say, okay, can I see the people in this story the way God sees them? And can God give me a vision to see the world through the eyes of that outsider? The person who's not maybe in the mainstream of things. And so last week, he was looking at the wise men, the astrologers, the magos, and this week, we get to dive into the story of the shepherds. And so the shepherds, what we're going to do, uh, so this, uh, the title of this sermon is called Circles of Affection, um, which hopefully will become apparent as to why that is later. But the shepherds are one of my favorite characters, and I think I like them most because when I was growing up, I'd go to like, at, like Advent dramas where it'd be all the kids, and, and the shepherds just seemed like a ragtag bunch that I could get with. Like, they always had like beige robes on, they wore the fake beards, but most importantly, they're the kids that had a weapon. So like, they're up there with a staff, you kinda, they're the wild card of the bunch, you never quite know what's going to happen, like, they're the one that's going to like knock another kid off the stage and just say, what? Um, so I, they're so fun, but they're also surprising because there's something about the shepherds that I know I missed before I started digging into this that I think is important for us as we talk about, can we see what God sees in the shepherds? So before we dive into the gospel of Luke, would you pray with me? Oh, Father God, thank you so much that you show up in unexpected ways to unexpected people like us. So God, would you show up, would you infuse these words, would your spirit hover over this place, meet each heart, speak through me, God. Amen. Amen. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Luke chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, uh, it's going to be on the screen. So we're starting in verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby. And I want you to remember that phrase, fields nearby, because we're going to come back to it. Keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified, like everybody is when angels show up in the Bible. But the angel said, don't be afraid, because I bring you good news of great joy that is going to be for all the people. Today in the town of David... A Savior has been born. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. 
You're going to find him, find the baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. And then suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God, saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. And then the angels left and they went into heaven and the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem, which is interesting. I just noticed this week that the angels never told them to go to Bethlehem. They said, go to the city of David. But somehow the shepherds knew that was Bethlehem. So we'll come back to that and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord told us about. So they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they'd seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. They were amazed. And there's a couple things I wanted to just note to you that I've been observing. The first is, Luke's is the only gospel that tells us anything about the shepherds. So Matthew doesn't seem to be interested in it. Mark and John don't really give us the same type of Christmas narrative. So Luke seems to be focused on them. And what's interesting is that Luke's gospel is known primarily as being a gospel that emphasizes the marginalized in a way that no other gospel does. He has this unique focus of making sure we know that the kingdom of God is about those on the underside of things. That it's about the outsider. And he wants us to know this. And so the the challenge is, in this story, how do we get eyes to see this how the shepherds would have seen it? Like, if we were a shepherd in the field, what would I have noticed uniquely? about what that message was. And and I want to point out two things. Uh, The the first one is, I think they would have noticed that the angel said, we're going to the city of David. And David is known for a lot of things. He was a king in the Old Testament. But one of the things he was particularly known for is the shepherd who became a king. And as I was thinking about this, I was imagining these shepherds. They're sitting in the field. They've got their kids around them. They're telling their bedtime stories. And the kid, one of their kids looks up and says, Dad, are we always going to be shepherds? Are we always going to kind of be outside of the rest of society? And if I were that dad, I would say to him, you know, I don't know, son, but I know there was once a shepherd who didn't stay a shepherd. He was king. And to a group of people that desperately needed hope, They could tell their kids there was once this king and and they would have told the story so much it would have been automatic for them to know, oh yeah, that king's from Bethlehem. We know exactly where we need to go. And then God shows up in his gentleness and his beauty in Bethlehem, the city of the shepherd king, to a bunch of shepherds. Ah, I think it's beautiful. And then two times in the story, it's mentioned that this king is going to be found in a manger. Now, the, the Greek for, that, for the word manger is not crib and it's not pack and play. Um, the, the, the Greek word for manger is fatne, which is super fun to say. So say it with me, fatne, fatne. So fatne was a feeding trough. So what it looked like is it's like a piece of stone that had a little bit hewn out of it that you'd put the food in for the animals. And if there was ever an occupation that knows about a feeding trough well... It's the shepherds. Every day, they're feeding their animals. They're putting the food in the fatnay. And they get this, and God graciously says, you know what? I could have had him show up anywhere, but I'm going to have him show up in the shepherd king's city, and let's lay him down in a feeding trough that you shepherds are going to feel comfortable walking into. Like, there is this ability of God to find common ground for all of us shepherds. Amen? Amen? Because we all need some common ground. 
And yet, on the one hand, the Bible emphasizes the glory and the beauty and the uh, kind of the kingliness of shepherds at times. I mean, you've got Abraham was a shepherd, Isaac was a shepherd, Moses was a shepherd, David was a shepherd, Amos was a shepherd. And yet into that, culturally, they didn't glorify the shepherds during the time of Jesus. So you have this very different picture. And I I, want to introduce you to a couple different pictures of how the individuals at the time of Jesus would have seen shepherds. Because it's very different than what we get in the story. And the first one is from a, a guy named Philo who was writing at the time of Jesus. And he said, such pursuits looking after sheep and goats are held mean and inglorious. Which is a fancy way of saying, I don't like them. Um, And then the Mishnah, which is the written down version of the oral tradition for the Jewish people, they said this, shepherds are incompetent. You don't need to feel obligated to rescue a shepherd who's fallen into a pit. Gosh, just say you don't like him, dude. It's like, man. And then there's a Midrash, which is a Jewish commentary, and in the Jewish commentary of Psalm 23, which says, the Lord is my shepherd, they couldn't help themselves. And so their commentary says, there's no occupation more degrading and lowly than that of the shepherd who trudges all day carrying his stick and knapsack. Which is seriously bold, because they're commenting on a piece of scripture that says, Yahweh is a shepherd. And yet they can't help themselves. There is something embedded in their psyche that just cannot deal with the fact that the shepherd could be anything but lowly, anything but disposable, anything but despised. And it makes you wonder where'd that come from? Because you could imagine you might see an individual shepherd and say, yeah, I know him and I don't really like him. But, but to just say all of them, like when they fall in a pit, you don't help them. Like there's something else going on here and uh, one of the most common kind of hypotheses of what this could be is that 1,500 years before Jesus, Israel was in slavery in Egypt. And in Genesis 46, one of the, there's this small little nugget in there and it mentions that two Egyptians, all shepherds, were detestable. They hated them. They hated them. And many people think that what's happening is that the Jewish people, 1,500 years before Jesus, got it locked into their psyche that this group of people is no good. This group of people can't be trusted. And I wonder if we have that today. Are there any groups of people that if you think of them, you just, you kind of, like there's something in your mind that you, I just, I don't know if I can trust that person. Maybe it's uh, a certain race that you, you've, you've had enough experiences with or there's something locked into your psyche that you, you just think something about them and you don't even know why. Or maybe it's somebody in a certain social status or maybe it's somebody who's um, uh, maybe a different economic status than you and the lies just kind of can get locked into our head And we need to figure out how to fight against it. But these shepherds, in the Christmas story, it uh, it mentions in there that they were in the fields nearby. Which is fascinating because the same Mishnah that says don't help them when they fall into a pit also says that we don't allow any shepherds in Israel. Which is like a country. A whole country. And they say, we don't want any of you in our country. And the only exception they give is if you happen to be raising sheep that are destined to be slaughtered in the temple. So most likely these are shepherds. They're caring for sheep who are destined for the temple. Which if you think of it, 
You've got shepherds that they don't have access to the religious system. They don't have access to the political system and yet they spend all day raising sheep to help other people get right with God. They spend all day helping other people get right with God, a rightness they will never receive on their own. And yet into that, God shows up through the angels to say, guess what? I heard what they said about you. I heard what they've been saying about you. I heard that they said that you are a throwaway, that you don't belong. But you know what I say? I say you are fearfully and wonderfully made and I didn't mess up when I made you. Do you know what they said? That God said, I know that they said you don't measure up. I heard him say it. They said it right to your face, you don't measure up. But you know what I say? I say, I don't care that you don't measure up because it's in your weakness that I can actually show up strong in you. And you know that, like, I heard him say that you can't come to the temple to worship. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to come to you and throw a party for you. I heard them say that the only way to get to God is through the religious people. And yet I say to you, I don't want their religion. I want a relationship and I want it with you. Can you imagine how much this would have blown the minds of the shepherds? And, and, and I can hear God saying, yeah, I know they say you're liars. I know they, they say you're thieves. I know that they say that you can't be trusted. But you know what I say? <laughs> I say nothing can separate you from the love of God. I say nothing can separate you from the love of God. And I actually love to hear you speak to me. And you, you know, I, I, I know that they maybe haven't said it, but they've said it with the way that they look at you, that they'd rather keep you on the periphery. They'd rather keep you on the outside. They'd rather keep, keep you kind of outside of their safe, neat and tidy area. But let me tell you, there is no outsider to me. There is no outsider to God and there is nowhere I can't, that I can go that you can't be there too. And I'm inviting you in. And God, uh, God says to them, you know, I know. I've heard you say it now because you've been listening so long that you think your situation will never change. I've heard you say it. But I say to you, nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God and he actually has a good plan. And I think that there is something that the shepherds needed to hear that we need to hear, which is who they say you are is not who God says you are. Who they say you are is not who God says you are. Did you hear me? <laughs> who they say you are is not who God says you are. The voices in your head telling you that you don't measure up. The voices in your head saying you're a throwaway. That's not what God says. It's not what God says. And yet eventually, the angels left. And the shepherds were back by themselves. Where they can have a tendency to go back to the voices that have been running through their head for hundreds and thousands of years that they have no credibility. None. None in the secular world, none in the religious world, none in the political world. And people keep a distance from them because they don't understand them. And what happens when you keep a distance from those on the margins is you can start assuming and writing them off as uneducated, as unskilled, as irreligious, as unhygienic, as unmotivated, as lazy. And the farther I get apart, the easier it gets to be to justify the lies in my head about who those people are, whoever those people are to you. So the question we're going to sit with for the rest of Today is who are the shepherds now? 
Who is it that you would have an easy time writing off as unskilled, as unmotivated, as uneducated, as lazy, as irreligious? And one of the things that I tend to go to with that question is I, I spend Monday through Friday hanging out at a place called Union Gospel Mission and I, I get to hang out with guys that are struggling with homelessness and addiction and extreme poverty. And if I were to name a group of people that I think falls into the category of the present day shepherds, it would be those guys that I hang out with. It would be a group of people that, they're, that, that oftentimes you, you can assume that they're unmotivated, that they're lazy, maybe they're uneducated, maybe that they're irreligious. And yet what I've learned is that a perception is dangerous because a perception is not always true. That there is something about a perception that can get so locked into our psyche we actually start believing it's true even though it's not. And what I've found is that I need a model to start thinking about how to think about this differently. And I want to introduce you to something called the circles of affection. And within the circles of affection, there, there are three circles, but it's essentially, um, it starts with the people closest to me. That I have this group of people that, that they're my family. Um, they're, and it could be blood, but it could be other family. It could be my closest friends or the ones that I, that I reach out to if, um, if I'm ever needing something. They're the ones that when I show up to a party, they're the first ones I'm going to say, are my friends here? Where are they? Are they here? And like, if, I'm an introvert, so when I show up to a party, I find a corner and I sit there and hopefully somebody interesting's there and then I leave two hours later. But for some people, they work the room. Um, but like for us introverts, it, uh, amen. Uh, but here's the deal. The defining of this group, while beneficial, is also the power behind most dangerous isms. The power behind racism, the power behind sexism, the power behind tribalism, the power behind classism. It exists because I define these as my people and I show them kindness, which means there's an other that I don't do the same towards. And it's the single greatest barrier to kingdom hospitality is defining this without getting a sense of who the rest are. And outside of this circle, we have, I mean, I just define it as like my tribe, but it's maybe not people that, um, I might not know them, but if I come in contact to them, we kind of get each other. You know, it's like, and for some, it's, it's based on socioeconomic status, like we're kind of the same on that front. Maybe it's, maybe it's a racial thing where it's like, I think I get you, maybe. Um, for some, it might be like, uh, uh, maybe based on being a man or a woman. Like, there's just something about it that when I walk up to you, we can kind of figure each other out, and I know how to react and interact with you. Um, but, but then there's a group outside of that, and this is the other. This is the stranger. These are the Packers fans. These. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> uh, but these are these are the folks on the margin. These are those that are experiencing homelessness. These are those who are wrestling with a disability. These are those who have a felony on their record. These are those who have an addiction that they just can't get out of. 
And I remember the first time that my circle started expanding significantly this way was about 10 years ago. I, I had started volunteering at, the, at a rehab center that the, the Salvation Army runs in Minneapolis. And I started hanging out there and I remember it was like a month into being there, I met a guy and we sat down to talk and he was telling me his story. And I remember he said, yeah, I've been here about a month or so, but six months ago, you should have seen me. He said, six months ago, I met this girl. I met this girl. She was a Christian girl. She, she, she brought me back to the faith of my youth. And I remember we were dating and we found a church home that we loved and we were going there week after week after week and I fell in love with God again. And I was reminded of who God is and I wanted to rededicate my life to him. And so one Sunday I walked up to rededicate my life and I took communion and I'd never taken communion and I didn't realize it was wine. And he walked out the door, his girlfriend went this way and he went this way and he didn't put down a bottle for four months. And I, I remember in that moment, I left going, these walls that separate where I see myself as an insider from where those on the outside are, are so much smaller than I thought they were. That they are so much less defined than I imagined they were because I had all these perceptions walking into this rehab center 10 years ago of, I know these guys, you know, they're addicts. I mean, they should just stop more. Um, like, <laughs> uh, all the real smart things you say. And, uh, and gosh, it's so not true. But I didn't know it until I started moving out of my insider circle status to somewhere else and started hearing stories that I didn't recognize. And I wonder where you see yourself. Are you an insider? Do you tend to be on the inside of things culturally, racially, economically? Are you an outsider? Would you say that there are most environments you aren't quite sure where you fit? You tend to be kind of on the outskirts. And, and, and the challenge that I have found is that the walls are much larger to try and go from the outside in than from the inside out. And it is the prerogative of those who would claim to be insiders, myself included, to be the ones to take the first step. Because the walls are just mammoth to try and come in as an outsider to the inside. And it is the job of those who would say they're an insider to start taking steps. Because I've learned that the closer I get to the margins, the more I realize that I think I know why God showed up to the shepherds. That the fact that they were on the outside of their own culture meant that they were going to get something that as an insider I wouldn't get where I might just try and box Jesus up and turn him into my own little outsider or insider system. Versus the outsiders who could realize, oh, God shows up to us, so it must mean he's going to show up to everybody. And I don't have to hold him in a box like Greg talked about last week. It's why one of my favorite quotes is by Dorothy Day, and it's so simple, but she says, stay close to the poor. Stay close to the poor. And the reason why this is, I think, is the most well put out by a guy named Father Greg Boyle who started Homeboy Industries in L.A., uh, the largest gang rehab organization in the U.S. He said, the invitation is not to romanticize the poor, but to recognize that some essential piece of my own salvation is tied up in our proximity to those on the outskirts. 
That I don't go to the outside, I don't go to the other, I don't go to the person struggling with homelessness because I'm there to help. I go there because I need help and that's where God showed up and God is still showing up there. And it's my job to show up there. So I want to introduce you to a friend of mine. Uh, This friend is named Harry. Some of you know Harry. He's been around this church for a little over a year. And I have learned so much from Harry. And so I want to show you a small snippet of our interview together and then uh, see what we can learn from it. I, uh, I was drinking a lot, you know, I'm, I'm, um, I'm, I'm recovering alcoholic, um, and I was, um, I needed a place to stay, you know, um, I was, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm working, but I, I couldn't stay where I was because, uh, I couldn't stay sober, and, um, well, I didn't really want to stay sober probably at the point, at that point in time. My Christmas at my mother's house, it's a lot. You know, sister, I mean, um, uncles, uh, cousins, yeah. brother, his family. So we're talking about maybe a good 14, 15 people. Yeah. You know, but here. Compared with how many? Here is going to be like almost, you know, we're talking about it's definitely over, over 100 people. Yeah. You know, everybody was happy, man. <laughs> everybody was happy. Um, you know, people came through, you know, giving out gifts. You know, it seemed like, I mean, it seemed like gifts was being given out like every hour on the hour. <laughs> you know, I must have got so many hats and scarves. <laughs> I was hat and scarfed out. <laughs> it was great. Yep. It was great. You know, it's great. And um, it's something I, I would never forget. It's like time I got into the door, it's just life just changed. I mean, like, it just changed. It just changed, you know. Automatically, I knew what mission meant. You know what I mean? I knew what Union Gospel meant, mission meant. I mean, it, it, the words didn't even say mean anything, but when I got there, they meant everything. You know, I knew that. I knew I was going to be all right. Being in the midst of of Christmas at at the mission, you know, you you get to see people who come in and you know have no hope at all, and next thing you know, I mean, it's just like it's it's like a shining light. It's you know, it, it's like that human that that touch, you know, that that touch, that that hug. That, that hello, how you doing there, brother? Uh, I mean, just knowing that someone cares. I'm 52 now, right? And uh, the mission helps me grow up. It helps me be a responsible adult. Something that I haven't been. Something I neglect through the years of being responsible. It really helps me. So sorry. 
<laughs> I didn't expect this part. <laughs> right. Knowing that I have a responsibility, not just towards myself, but you know, towards society. You know, even though, you know, every day I try to give back like that. I try to give back in terms of, you know, my deeds, my words, my spirit. It's me. Let's put it that way. It's a perfect fit. <laughs> <laughs> It's like when you have a lot of things, right? You know, car, house, kids. You know, I want to go to Puerto Rico. It's Christmas time. I don't want to spend winter in Minnesota. You know, I want to see how Christmas is in Puerto Rico or whatever. You kind of tend to forget, like, where you're at, you know, what's, what's the purpose. You know, and, you know, at the mission, I could see that purpose. I mean, I could see it so clearly, you know, I could see it just, I mean, it's just so clearly that, you know, I'm, I'm here to help people. I'm here to help another person. I'm stage four, I have cancer, stage four, you know, within my, from my kidney, within both of my lungs. And it's not having a sickness that I think upon, but I have I have a purpose, you know. My it seems like my sickness gives me more purpose to 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 wake up to to be of service to others, you know. Um, and no matter how I'm feeling, yeah. you know, no matter how I'm feeling, because 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 I know God has me. I know He takes care of me. Just like the shepherds, they didn't let anything stop them. I mean, so many times you hear about the shepherds, but you don't hear about, you know, the, the, the storms, you know, they didn't have so much to eat, you know, they depended on, they depended on the people. Yeah. You know, they depended, they, they depended on the community, you know, and as a church, that's what we do. We depend on the people. We depend on the community. Yeah. You know, we keep coming back. Yeah. You know, every... Saturday, every Sunday, every Thursday, every group, every, you know, um, you know, we, you know, it's, 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 don't, don't get me wrong, it's really nice to see a pastor with no sneakers, <laughs> no sneakers on, you know, he's everywhere, but it's great when you see the chairs all full, the, the clapping, the understanding, you know, people are, how would I say, happy to hear the word. Amen. Amen. I've learned from Harry how to live with gratitude. I've learned from Harry that making an excuse for not using my gifts is not a good thing to do. <laughs> that no matter what I'm going through, God has given me gifts and it's my job to use them. I've learned from Harry that church is way more about y'all sitting in the seats than anybody standing up here, whether they have shoes on or not. Um, and I've learned that the assumptions I have are totally wrong. <laughs> 
I remember when we were doing that interview, I, I gave him some of the questions. I didn't know how, it, how he'd answer them. And when I asked him about Christmas at the mission, I kind of thought it'd be a downer. Um, and because uh, I had my, my perspective of how do I see this place? And yet he saw it as, man, this is a blessing. Can I see things the way that other people see them? What do I need to learn from the shepherds? Because I think what's so interesting is that, that Jesus, he doesn't just give us insiders an opportunity to go outside, which he could have done. But in the Christmas story, we see the outsiders getting brought on the inside so that they can be informed, not just by us, but by God, that I don't see you as unskilled. I don't see you as unmotivated. I don't see you as lazy. I don't see you as ir- irreligious. I see you as people that were made in the image of God worth dying for. And can I agree with God in that? That's the question. Can I agree with God? And one more uh, quote from my friend Richard Beck. He says, so you can see the power what Jesus is doing. He reaches to the edges of his society bringing a marginalized person into the center. The ignored and the the dismissed are now in the spotlight. The focus of our care, our affection, and our attention. And I wonder who is on the periphery of our life. I wonder who's on the periphery of our church. I wonder who we need to spotlight. Who's being ignored in our church, in our community, in our neighborhood, in our family, in our homes. Because God showing up to the shepherds, if nothing else, tells us that we need to be showing up to the shepherds and making sure the shepherds feel seen, um, no matter where they are. So as we wrap things up, I want to close with a few items uh, to take away. The, The first one is that we need to start by waking up to our emotional clutter. Because just like it did for the Israelites with the shepherds, who for 1,500 years had a narrative locked in their head of who shepherds were, so we can have a narrative locked in our head. And to the degree that we live in that narrative, we miss the gift. We miss the gift. Because I know all too well, it is possible even to be physically proximate to those on the margins, but still be emotionally distant. Like, I can show up to work every day, and I can choose to just walk through things very quickly and get to the next meeting, or I can choose to slow down and listen and hear and learn. Father Greg Boyle puts it this way. He says, It would seem that quite possibly the ultimate measure of health in any community might well reside in our ability to stand in awe at what folks have to carry rather than in judgment at how they carry it. Can we stand in awe? I remember six years ago, I, I, uh, there was a guy staying at the mission. He was staying in the shelter area, and, and man, he was a problem. <laughs> I mean, he, we've, I, we've had, he's a problem. And, and like, so, so the deal is, like, he, he struggled with some significant delusional disorders. And, and what would happen is he'd get up in the middle of the chapel service and he'd start pointing out individuals saying, that guy's going to come and get me, that guy's going to come and get me, that guy's going to come and get me, so I'm going to get them first. And in the context like that is, that's not a good thing to say. And what, so what would happen is, night after night, we'd have to say, man, you got to go. This isn't safe for you here to be doing that. And I remember maybe a month after his most recent kind of outburst, I sat down with him and he started telling me his story. And he told me about where he grew up in Africa. And he told me about how a month before he came to the U.S., he was in his home and he watched his wife and his kids get sexually abused and then murdered right in front of him. 
And then he left and he came to the U.S. And he talked about how every day I live in constant fear that that's going to happen again. I just see it every night. Every night I watch it. I watch the movie in my own head. And I remember a month after that happened, I, I, I had this great idea. I'm going to take like five or six guys who are staying in the shelter and we're going to go to this camp in Wisconsin. It was a great plan. Um, and... Uh, so I asked this guy, I said, hey, do you want to go? And I was kind of hoping and assuming he'd say no. And then he said yes. And I said, great. Um, and so it was the first uh, morning after we'd been there for one night. And I was up early and he walks in and he sits down. And there's kind of this lightness in his eye that I'd never seen in him before. And I look at him and just ask, how you doing, man? He says, oh, David, guess what? I had a dream. And I thought he was going to like start reciting Martin Luther King's speech and he didn't and he just stopped. And so I said, well, that's great. And he said, no, David, you don't get it. It's been over 10 years since I've had a dream. And then he went on, he said, David, I've, I never really go to sleep. Like I, I sort of do, but I've always got my antennas up. I'm always alert. I never really get rest because I'm always in fear of what's going to happen. But last night I felt safe and I dreamed and I, I had the first dream in the time that I've been here, which at that point had been eight years. The first time I remembered my home, I remembered my family without watching what happened to them. And I remember it was that moment where I thought, how easy is it for me to live in judgment at how I see him carrying his pain rather than in awe of what he's actually surviving? And I think our job is to start dealing with the perceptions, the assumptions, the judgments that we all deal with that make it easy to judge somebody as the other, as outside my circle of affection, rather than realizing I need to learn their story so I can live in awe at what they've lived through. That's part of our job. So the next step is we need to locate ourselves in this circle of affection. Because if you are an outsider, or an outsider, if you're an insider, if we don't know where we are, there can be a tendency to just start doing things without thinking about it. And if you are an insider, one of the tendencies, and I had this tendency, was, well, I'm the resourced one. I've got education, I've got um, money, I have a car, I have a house, I have a job, I'm, I, I have all these things, so I should just start, you know, giving them to people that don't. And the challenge is, what I found is, well, it doesn't work. <laughs> and what I found is, I love the way that this quote from Father Greg Boyle puts it, he says that we're sent to the margins not to make a difference, but so that folks on the margin will make us different. Because I am a different person than I was 10 years ago. I'm a different person than I was 10 years ago. And I would not have believed that quote 10 years ago. I would have said, oh, come on. Come on. We just got to, you know, give them our stuff and then it'll be fine. And, and what I've realized is that doing good is a natural byproduct of me being changed. That when I show up to those on the outside, those in the margins, it changes me and that allows me to do actually something meaningful rather than just jumping in as if I can be the savior. Assuming I know what somebody needs. Assuming they're an outsider in the way I think they are. And yet, it's our job to show up and get proximate enough to actually be present with people. And then finally, we need to take a step in either direction. If you are an insider, it is our job to slowly start working our way outside. 
slowly. And if you are an outsider and you're brave enough to start taking steps on the inside, God bless you. But I think that one of the things we miss if we don't start taking steps is that I think that the present day manger scene would look less like it did in Israel and less like this room and more like this room here, which is our chapel at the mission. We have chapel service there every night for the last 115 years, 365 days. Um, And I love the chapel service. But I also love just as much what happens after, which is all the chairs disappear and the cots on the side move out. And I think if we were going to have a present-day manger scene where Jesus would feel most comfortable to show up, it'd be a place like this. And if I don't know a place like that, then not only do I miss what I might learn from somebody like Harry, but I actually miss where God said he showed up. That I miss where God said he showed up. So we have a few opportunities. Um, Mary talked about, in the most wonderful way, uh, the warm welcome. And uh, the warm welcome is this great opportunity to partner with this church to make this a dignified place. That when somebody who shows up, who's an outsider, who's used to getting the leftovers, shows up and is given the first fruit. It's a beautiful thing. And we can do that. What would it feel like if every time somebody walked in here, they felt like they were walking into the Ritz-Carlton rather than this church? I mean, what if they felt so blessed? They felt so honored. They felt so dignified. And let me tell you, there aren't many places that do that in a great way. So that's an opportunity. I also want to encourage you to grab one of these sheets at the Hello Desk. Um, This is a list of all of the primary partner organizations that this church works with. These are really great kind of on-ramps to take a step. To say, okay, I'm going to take one step outside of my circle of affection because I know that it's not about me helping, it's about me getting helped and actually finding God there. And so I would encourage you to grab one of those and pray over it and see where God leads you. So as we close, I'm going to ask that you would stand with me. Um, I'm going to invite our prayer teams to come forward. Uh, If you have any need whatsoever that could use prayer, these folks would love to be praying over you. If you have never been introduced to this Jesus that doesn't say it's time for the outsiders to figure it out, but he shows up to the outsiders and says, welcome in. It's a beautiful invitation and these folks would love to make that introduction. And as we uh, close, would you just put your hands out and receive this benediction? May the God of all grace, may the God of all outsiders, may the God of all insiders bless you. And may you walk outside your circle of affection and there realize God has been there the whole time. Amen? Amen. Amen. Go in peace. Have a good week.